The following is a rebroadcast of Stratford University's Tech Talk. To hear Tech Talk live, tune in Saturday mornings at 9. You can find us on the radio on 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, 1039 FM HD2, and 1077 FM HD2. Or you can listen live online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Tech Talk Radio. It's technology you can understand. And now, here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Andrew Mitchell. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Andrew Mitchell. And uh, this week was a big week for uh, Microsoft. Windows 3.1 celebrated its 30th birthday, and we'll have something to say about that later in the show. People have been looking at mushrooms, and they've discovered that mushrooms somehow communicate with each other through their root system. And um, we will discuss that and what it means. This week, we're going to feature one of the men who was a co-designer of the original IBM PC. He holds three of the... uh, of the nine patents that were in that original IBM PC. And he's, uh, was one of the preeminent African-American engineers there working at IBM. His name is Mark Dean. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. Dear Tech Talk, we have an email from Don in Paramus. Dear Tech Talk, I'm going on a road trip and would like to take my laptop, I'd like to use my laptop while my spouse is driving the car. Unfortunately, my laptop only has an AC charging system, one of those AC bricks, you know, that they have. Uh, how can I charge my laptop from the car's 12-volt system, Don in Paramus, New Jersey? Well, luckily, Don, there's a very simple solution. Get yourself an inexpensive 12-volt DC to 120-volt AC power inverter and you'll be able to charge your laptop while you drive down the road. You just plug the inverter into your 12-volt accessory socket. That's the old uh, cigarette lighter socket. If you we're, we're not allowed to about. call that the cigarette lighter anymore? No, we can't call it a cigarette okay. lighter. It's, that, that's a, it's encouraging. an accessory. <laughs> okay, it's, that's encouraging bad behavior. All right. That's right. And, um, and, and then you can just plug your laptop into it. There's a... Uh, there's, there's one on Amazon, G-Lo, G-E-L-O-O, G-Lo. It's a 300-watt power inverter with dual USB ports, and it's only $29 on Amazon. And this little inverter is really small. It's like 2 inches by 2 inches by 3 inches. And you just plug it into your uh, accessory socket, and you'll have 300 watts of power. Now, that's going to be enough to power your uh, laptop. Now, you can't, you know, you can't hook them. A microwave oven to that because that'd be 1500 watts so you, you can, it'll only power things that 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 are 300 watts or less but it's uh it's really easy to use and uh, you can always and i mean i'm thinking of ordering of ordering this power inverter just having it in my car and it, it, then i'll always be able to have ac power at will so i never thought about this how much does a laptop um you know how much wattage does it require 
Yeah, it's less than 300 watts. I never th- I, I realized it's it's pretty low considering, you know, compared to uh, say a hair dryer and stuff like that. Yeah, know? hair yeah. dryer like 1500 yeah. watts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the laptops are are pretty, you know, they're they're pretty well, they they're because they're, you know, they operate on batteries and they and they don't want uh, you know, they don't want to consume too much power. So 300 watts is really enough. Mm-hmm. To, uh, to, to to power that. We got an email from Knock in Cleveland. Uh, dear Doc and Andrew, I downloaded the program from Microsoft Auto Runs after reading about it, uh, and and it keeps showing uh, showing something called Synaptics. What Auto Runs is, you you know, if you want to see what programs are automatically uh, loaded in Windows when you boot up. You can run auto runs and it lists all of the programs. It's a Microsoft program. You can download it from the Microsoft site, auto runs, and you'll list all the programs that are loaded and you can tell it which ones you don't want to load because a lot of times they're just, you know, there's a lot of junk that's loaded that you really don't need. Well, this person ran auto runs and they they, they found this program called Synaptics. They said, I don't know what it is. Uh, it, it, uh, you know, I ran my antivirus uh, scan and it didn't, it didn't remove it, didn't show that it was, it was spyware. Uh, what is it? Should I get rid of it? Well, um, knock synaptic software you see running your laptop isn't really malware. It's actually the software that controls your laptop's touchpad. It's a synaptics touchpad. So it's, it's basically just operating that. Now, now synaptics is completely safe. It's, uh, but it's essential to operating the, uh, the laptop. That's why your antivirus doesn't detect it as as malware, uh, and so. But now the thing is, some people actually do want to disable their touchpad on their laptops if they plan to keep their computer as a desktop, because it's easy to have your thumb hit the uh, hit the uh, you know hit the, hit the uh, hit the pad, and then your cursor jumps, and then then it messes up whatever you're typing. In fact, on my laptop, I disabled my um, I, I disabled my uh, my touchpad because it was just it was too distracting for me. So I I, I disabled it. I just basically uh, uninstalled the device driver, and so I don't I don't have it. But the t- but, it's just the, the mouse still works, and you still you can still move the cursor around with the mouse. Yeah, right? yeah. So I, yeah. I have a mouse and a mouse pad. Yeah. And so I just use the mouse, and I never use the touchpad. As a mouse, so yes. to speak, and um, because I I could not type without just momentarily touching the touchpad, and then the cursor jumps, uh, and then I'm I'm typing in the wrong place. It just happened so many times; it slowed me down. I just I just turned off the touchpad. Now that's never ever happened to me. It might be just individuals. You know, it depends on exactly how you're used to sort of draping your hands across the. The, the keyboard. Be. And and guess what? I'll tell you why. Doc, did you learn to type, you know, early in life that you do typing like people who learn to type do with all yeah. 10 fingers? See, now I am a hunt and peck kind of guy. So oh, I feel like I mean, I'm, I'm holding I'm, my I'm, arms I even, up. I don't even look. I don't even look at the keyboard. When See, I type. and I'm th- but I'm thinking because now you have a way of resting your hands that they're sort of brushing against the uh, the, yes. the pad, and whereas I'm always like my 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 hands are a little bit higher and they're sort of plunging down on the keyboard, and I've been doing that all my life. So that's why oh, I don't have a problem with so the touchpad. That's, that's the difference. Yeah, that so, is the difference. My, my hand will just brush down, and what happens is when I'm in a rhythm and I'm writing, I. It's almost like my fingers are just are just on autopilot. Yes. I just think what I want to write, and they're just doing their thing. 
and I might be a, a sentence ahead, and then my and my fingers are just following up behind as I'm writing it. So I get in this rhythm and this flow, and that touchpad just ruined it because then it would jump the cursor and I'd have to stop. Yes. Okay. So now I we just, know. I just completely, uh, completely got rid of it. Yeah. I, uh, I have to tell you, in high school, my typing class was the class I got the lowest grade in. Wow. I mean, I got a C in that class because it was so freaking boring. You know, you'd have to type the same sentence over. <laughs> the and lazy over fox and jumped over. over the something. Was that? Yeah. The one? <laughs> and then, and then, and then my, that, then I would start daydreaming and thinking about, you know, something else. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you know, the typing gets screwed up. I, 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 I just hated that class. It was just, my mind could not sit there for an hour and just drone on typing this stuff. Yeah. But, uh, but it did, it, it, but I ended up becoming a very fast typist, but really not, not because of that class. <laughs> okay. Just, yeah. But I, it did give me a good habit not to, not to hunt and peck. Yes, so. which I have a bad habit, but it's too late. I'm just not going to do anything about it now. It's too late. Yeah. It's too late. We, we got an email from Brian in Kansas. Dear Doc, can I zip my pictures or MP3 files to save space? Love the podcast, Brian in, uh, in uh, Kansas. Well, Brian, Zip, I mean, Zip's a very popular compression algorithm. It was created by Philip Katz. I've actually featured him before on the, on the program. And it's, and it's supported. That protocol is used in many popular programs like WinZip, 7-Zip, and recent versions of Microsoft Windows. Zipping a file or set of files can often reduce their size significantly. Uh, unfortunately, it always doesn't reduce the size of the file. Now, the concept of compression is pretty simple. The idea is that information stored on the disk is often stored in a way that's not optimal for storage. Uh, I mean, one of the simplest methods uh, of compression, for instance, is what they call this run length encoding. Consider, let's suppose you've got a, a file and there are 10 asterisks all in a row. The same character repeated 10 times. And that frequently happens when you've got, um, when you've got files. Uh, so what you could do is you could create what they call a plus char character that, uh, that would indicate uh, how many asterisks you have. So you, you could have, you could define a plus, and it would be plus 10 asterisk. And that little symbol would mean the plus would mean that I'm going to there, there's going to be a repeated character. Then the ten is how many times it's repeated, and then the character itself is the asterisk. So that plus ten asterisk is only four characters, and those four characters replace the ten characters that were originally there. So run length encoding is is one very common way to do encryption, and there are there are many many other ways to uh, to do it. Now here's the thing: if the file that you want to zip is already compressed chances are the compressed file will be larger than the original file. That means photographs, JPEGs are already compressed. Wait, why is that happening? Shouldn't it be doubly compressed? How does it go backwards? No, it, 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 it just, it, there's, it turns out that they're already compressed, so all the things like run length encoding and all the tricks have been used. So when they go in and try to do additional tricks, it doesn't buy them anything, but they've got the overhead of the tricks. Uh -huh. So it, you end up getting a larger file. So if you would zip a JPEG file, it would get a little bit larger. Or if you would 
zip an MP3, which is really compressed. Uh, that's an audio file. It would get a little bit larger. So it only works on uncompressed file. Like if you had a Word document or an Excel spreadsheet that was not compressed, and you compress it, you'll get a sub substantial reduction in, in size. So, but, you, um, you know, ZIP, I, I was just looking this up because it's always put in capital letters like it stands for something like, you know, and it doesn't. It just means ZIP as in move at high speed. So when Katz invented this, you know, unlike other things we say, you know, JPEG or whatever, it, uh -huh. there's words behind that. It's an acronym. This is actually just a word that we keep capitalizing, ZIP, as in moving we at high say, speed. Yeah, like zip it up. Yeah. You know, I mean, it just, it, 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 yeah, there's no acronym behind it. Right. And, and, and he ended up um, trying, you know, he ended up trying to copyright this thing and make money out of it. But I don't think he ever made much money out of it, even though zip became sort of a dominant compression standard everywhere. We got an email from Dwayne in New York. I'm thinking of getting a 3D printer. What do I need and how does it work? Are they very expensive? Love the show, Dwayne in New York. Well, um, you know, you you can you you can buy them for a few hundred dollars, Dwayne, and you know you can buy ones that basically you know print with say glue. So, for instance, uh, let's let's you, you have to decide what medium you're going to print with. So it's basically a if you, if you're going to print with a hot glue gun, for instance, it's basically a robot controlled hot glue gun that uses plastic instead of glue. Uh, as the basis of the 3D printer. Now, strands of plastic are fed into the printhead, which he is heated up to melt the material. The printhead moves very precisely in three dimensions and drops lines of plastic onto the print bed. And the printer does this over and over again, building up layers of plastic until it forms a 3D part. Now, every object starts as a 3D model. Now, they're usually made in a CAD program that's designed to work, you know, on 3D models. And now, it doesn't understand anything, but what it does, it slices the 3D model. So you, you, you take a 3D picture of something and you take a thin slice of it and it prints each slice of the 3D model. So you print a slice and then you'd print the next slice and then you print the next slice until you get the whole thing formed. So you can actually form like a closed circle, but you're just printing it a slice at a time. Now, the main problem is print speed. We, we had some 3D printers at Stratford we were testing, and it would take hours to print because it, it's so slow. And then you've got to be careful that if, uh, if the air is flowing or the air conditioner is on, uh, sometimes it distorts the, the 3D print. So we would have to enclose the 3D printer in a box, and, and we just wait hours and hours and hours. Uh, so you can, you can print 3D items, but it's not really for high-speed production. Now, they also make 3D printers that will print metal and aluminum. I mean, Elon Musk, some of his rocket parts, they print with 3D printers. But they're, they're of course, all in metal. So How big are those things? Uh, <laughs> when you're doing rocket parts, how big are those things? Big. Uh huh. Like this. This is this is a big 3D printer. They they actually have huge 3D printers that will print entire houses. Oh my gosh! I didn't know about. And that. And so they've built. They they now have. Uh, they now have. They they lay this big 3D printer out on tracks, and they've actually built entire houses by 3D printing. <laughs> wow. And and it. Uh, they just turn it on and leave it. Uh, they. I mean, in that case, you could print with uh, you could print with concrete, for instance, and you just feed concrete in, or you could print with a mixture of mud 
Uh, so they have various uh, things that they would print with, and they can make all sorts of domed structures. And so there, there have been companies that have built 3D printed houses, and the, the idea is that they're trying to come up with a way to make really a low-cost house. So 3D printing is going to have applications, actually, and, um, and we're just trying to find out what the, what the best application is. We got an email from Ovet in Woodbridge. Dear TikTok, I got a question about pop-ups that asking me if you want to save a password when you log into a website. Now, I never say yes, because I, 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 I don't like to save my passwords in, in, my, uh, in my browser. How can I disable those pop-ups so they don't ask that question? I use Chrome as my browser. Well, uh, well, I don't blame you. If you're, if you're using a computer which is used by more than just you, I don't blame you for not wanting to save the passwords uh, in the browser because somebody else could come along and log into to the website you just visited because the password would be saved. And this is especially what you want to be careful of when you're dealing with a public computer like, um, you know, that somebody else is going to be using on, like at a hotel business center. You really never want to save your save your um, um, uh, passwords in, in the browser. You can easily disable these pop-ups. And in the case of Chrome, just open up the Chrome browser. And then in the upper right-hand corner, you have your Google profile picture, you know, that little, that little great little selfie that you took of yourself. Click on that. And then underneath that, there will be something that looks like a key. And that's called, that's the passwords icon. Click on that. And then a, a screen will come up, and at the top of the screen, you can uh, you can it'll say offer to save passwords, and you can simply turn that off. It's toggled on now, and you can simply toggle it off, and so it won't ask to save the passwords anymore, and um, and then it's off. So, but Doc, you have to be logged into Google. See, I tend to Google. I don't log into because I don't want them to track me even more. So I right. don't put I don't sign in ever on Google when I'm just using it as a as a search engine. So what what do you do then? It, it does you know because it's part of your profile. It's not actually part yeah, of your browser yeah, operation, it, right? Yeah, they're saving the passwords as part of your profile. Yeah. So I just That's click. On, I just if you're not logged in. Yeah. Uh, it's not. Uh, yeah. I guess it's not going to save the passwords. Well, I just click in. on. You know, so many pop ups. I'm just so used to hitting the X. I never say yes or no because you never know if the pop up is legitimate and what you might yeah, be triggering. Yeah. So I'm just like hitting the X. So it just shuts it down, you know, closes it, gets rid of it. That way, I don't have to ask, answer any questions, or engage yeah, with it in I any think, way. Well, that'll that'll we can do some research. Yeah. To see if you're not logged in, whether it asks to save the password. <clears throat> yeah. That that would really be a bad practice. But you know, the the thing is, when I go, and I'm, I'm at a business office and I'm using a browser, I don't log in there, and uh, and I'm just, <clears throat> you know, and so. Depending on the browser, it may save the passwords. I don't know. And depending I, I on the website, because to... sometimes the password, the offer to save it is actually on a web page in the site you're visiting. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. yeah. No, that's ex that's exactly true. Listen, I think I'm just going to end the emails yeah, there because we're okay. rolling at 9.20. We got so we, much. We want to get this yes, show we do. on the road. Listen, yeah. we love your emails. 
email us at techtalk at stratford.edu and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Yes, indeed we will. And next we're going to meet one of the co-creators of the IBM PC, you know, the thing that very slow-moving international business machines, you know, which really did business machines when they started doing personal computing. Well, they did it within a year and we're going to meet one of the men who helped make that happen. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. The need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. How do you advance your career while still working full-time? With an education that fits your schedule, Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University, changing lives one student at a time. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Mark E. Dean. Mark Dean is an African-American computer engineer, best known as co-creator of the IBM PC, the ISA bus, that's the industry standard architecture bus, which is a way that uh, peripheral cards communicate with the CPU on the IBM, and, and he led the team that developed the one gigahertz computer chip that really sped the IBM PC up back in the day. Dean was born March 2nd, 1957 in Jefferson City, Tennessee. He's credited with uh, helping to launch the personal computer age with work that made machines more accessible and powerful. If you remember back then, IBM just was in the mainframe business and uh, they wanted to get into the PC business because, well, Apple had a personal computer in the home and IBM thought they should get into that arena. So they created a, um, a team to do that. Now, from an early age, Dean showed the love for building things. As a boy, Dean constructed, I mean, this is a project, a tractor from scratch with the help of his father. I mean, like, it's really odd to pick a tractor, but his dad was a supervisor at the Tennessee Valley Authority. In elementary school, he took advanced math classes. And in high school, Dean even built his own computer. He built a, he built a radio, he built an amplifier. He just liked to tinker around with electronics. Dean excelled in many different areas. He was a gifted athlete, an extremely smart student who graduated with straight A's from Jefferson City High School. 
He graduated in 1979 from the University of Tennessee at the top of his class, where he studied engineering. In 1980, Dean was hired by IBM as an engineer. He served as a member of the team that created the original PC. Now, back in the day, they in 1980 is when they formed the team to, to put together the original IBM PC, and they gave them a year to, to launch it, which was unheard of in IBM time. And the president of IBM assigned a small team of engineers, 13 engineers actually, to pull this off. And and Dean was one of the members of that team. So, but he this served. is a team that the other brass at uh, IBM didn't even know about. Is that right? It was kind of like a secret delegation from the a secret assignment from the uh, president right. from it the very like, very the top. Skunk, the Skunk Works, really, and they and they got a nondescript building down in Boca Raton, Florida, you know, far away from any IBM research uh, facility, and these guys just went to work, and they decided not. The, the idea was were, that they were not going to be vertically, vertically integrated like the mainframe business was, where IBM makes everything, the, the memory, the CPU, the printers, everything, every component in an IBM mainframe suite is built by IBM. But they were going to be uh, different than that. They decided they would use components that were made by other companies. And... They made the audacious choice that they were not even going to build the operating system. They were going to purchase the operating system from a little upstart company called Microsoft. Well, that was just unheard of. And if they actually made these adjustments, their goal was to launch the PC in one year. So Dave... Uh, uh, Mark was on that, uh, on that team. He worked closely with his colleague, Dennis Moeller, and they developed together the new industry standard architecture, ISA, bus system. Now, that, if you remember, the IBM PC had slots where you could plug in peripheral cards. Those slots you were plugging into, you were plugging into a bus that communicated. It was a communications bus, and it communicated with the CPU. So it would have like different commands in it, like interrupt. It would say, okay, I want to interrupt the processor and tell the processor that I need to transfer something out of memory. And so it, it could communicate to the processor in a very logical way to tell the processor when it needed support from the processor. And that was a standard architecture that they published. So that any, anybody could create a card that would slip in a slot and it, and it could be part of the computer very easily. He developed this ISA bus system, which was, uh, an, which was an open architecture. And then you could plug in, uh, uh, plug in cards that would support disk drives, that would support printers, that would support monitors, that would support Ethernet connections. Anything you wanted to, peripheral you wanted to add to the PC, you just plug it into the ISA bus. They released the first open architecture PC on August 12, 1981. Remember, Mark was Mark Dean was just hired in 1980, and it was using an operating system developed by Microsoft. That operating system was the disk operating system DOS. Now, in 19 uh, uh, now um, later on, Dean you know Dean got into the chip business, and he led the team at IBM Austin, Texas, at the IBM's Austin, Texas lab, 
And they created the first gigahertz chip because they were trying to basically, basically run faster and faster PCs. Now, Dean holds three of the original patents uh, in the IBM PC. There were a total of, uh, of nine patents. He has overall 40 patents to his name. Now, uh, once the PC project was done, he became VP of Research for IBM's business systems, and he managed a team that built the supercomputer BlueGene. Now, BlueGene supercomputer was the one that came after Big Blue or Dark Blue that, that actually uh, won the big chess game. Um, and now he, he led this team, and there were two approaches to make building a supercomputer. You could actually have, uh, have a few, just a few processing uh, hubs, and you could run them faster and faster and faster. Maybe cool them down to liquid nitrogen or temperature. That's like the Cray computer. Another way would be to get thousands of, of cheap processing nodes and run them all in parallel and get speed that way. So he basically had two teams compete with each other. You, you're either going to be very fast with a small number of processors or not so fast individually with, with a whole lot of processors running in parallel, but collectively having the processing speed. And he let the teams compete with each other. And in the end, it was the uh, multiple processor approach that won because that that's always cheaper. So parallel processing won. So BlueGene, his team developed BlueGene. They spent over $100 million in five years. And BlueGene had 134,000 processors running in parallel, and they could do 280 trillion operations per second. It was the fastest computer in the world at the time. Now, what was now, it used for, Doc? I mean, you build a thing. It's just a demonstration computer. I mean, it's not like it it, it, it went into use for something. Or oh no, they, they like Los Alamos got a supercomputers to do nuclear. Okay, so nuclear they started building similar ones elsewhere. Is that the They're idea? Used, they were used for very complicated simulations. Mm -hmm. Uh, or it could be atmospheric simulation where you're trying to actually model the wind of, of, uh, in the entire Earth. Mm -hmm. and, and you break and you break the, the volume up in the little cubic centimeter blocks, and then you calculate what happens with each block. It just and so you just have a so they were they were they were used a lot for massive, massive simulations. or it could be they're trying to do protein folding or you know and then and that's a big calculation. So, now they also did fun things with them, like play chess, and um, and that was to be, that was to sort of um, popularize it. But there there weren't very many sold. I mean, because you know big government labs would own them, so they they might build a supercomputer, and then they might only ship ten in the world. So it's it's a low volume production. Um, he earned his master's degree in electrical engineering from the Florida from Florida Atlantic University in 82. Ten years later, in 92, he got, his, he got a doctorate in electrical engineering from Stanford. He just kept working on his education because he wanted to finish that. Well, by now, the way, you know, uh, look at the date from Florida Atlantic University. He's in Boca Raton. He gets his uh, master's in 1982. That means even as he was developing the IBM PC, he was going to school and getting his master's he was, degree. He was going to school, yeah. Yeah, he was he was uh, he was pretty busy back in the day. Now he um, when, uh, he was ultimately appointed as chief technology officer for the IBM Middle East and Africa division, which operated out of Dubai. And he 
focused on bringing IBM technology solutions to Africa and to help develop the continent's IT skill, IT skills uh, capacity in Africa, and also to develop a computer science uh, workforce there in Africa. Then he went on to um, serve as vice president uh, for the company's Almada and Research Center in San Jose. And he, and he was leading research projects there. That's, I think that the San Jose project, it, it, that's where he started working on that uh, supercomputer. In 1996, he was named I, an IBM fellow. He was the first African-American to ever receive that honor. In 1997, he was honored with Black Engineer of the Year uh, President's Award, and he was inducted into the Inventors Hall of Fame. In 2001, he was selected as, member, as a member of the National Academy of Engineers. Now, uh, when he uh, left IBM, he, he went into education. He became the interim dean at, at University of Tennessee's uh, Tickle College of Engineering. He was, there, uh, he was their interim dean from 2008 to 2009. Yeah, and Doc, I have a theory as to why he didn't stay dean, because he didn't want to go through life being dean dean. Oh yeah, I'm thinking that maybe that be... was a motivation. There it says I'm going to move on to something else. What 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 is he now? What is he doing now? He's uh, I I think he's he's just doing teaching now. Yeah, he's doing, yeah. I, when I was going to college, there was the dean of students. Oh. His real name was was Dean Wright. So he was like Dean Dean Wright. <laughs> <laughs> he, he he also had the dean problem. <laughs> um, he um. He went on to become a John Fisher Distinguished Professor at the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at University of Tennessee. I, the reason he migrated to teaching, his passion was really to bring young black men into high-end research in computer science. And so his goal was, was to do that. I think he took this administrative job for a couple of years just to help launch the department. But his real passion was actually in the classroom, and um, and I think that's 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 what he's devoting his time to now. In 2011, he he wrote in his blog that he doesn't use a PC anymore; he just uses a tablet computer. He said that the the day of the PC is gone, so he's he's moved on. That's funny, Doc. Do you remember about a decade ago we were talking when the iPad was coming out, and I was the one, the idiot of the three of us who were talking about it that day. That I didn't see the purpose of a tablet since we did have laptops. <laughs> uh -huh. And now I have to be, I am one of those. I've got two iPads. Yeah, I mean, it's so, it's so convenient. It is, and you can there. do very nearly everything. Um, one of the few things that I still want to do on my laptop is, like, say, my taxes, which I do by myself with a program that I purchased, but, you know, things like that. But honestly, you can do so many things, pretty much everything you ever wanted to on a tablet now, and you could be doing yeah. it slouching somewhere as opposed to sitting at a table or at a desk, you know? So I, I think one reason he was so successful, Mark Dean was so successful, he's a very good uh, manager, like when he was leading that blue gene effort, he said, look, he said, I, I, I can't tell these guys exactly what to do. So he had the two competing teams, but he made them share their results with each other so they could track each other's results as they went through it. He said it was very open, very collaborative. And the team collectively decided to go with the parallel processing approach. And the people that were on the, pro uh, the non-parallel processing approach 
most of them switched over to the parallel processing approach because even they were convinced that was the best approach. So he, he basically was able to get the best out of people because of the way he managed. And uh, so he was, a, he was a good engineer in, in his own right, as he did with the PC, but then he was a very good, uh, very good manager. <clears throat> and he's trying to pass those skills along to the, to the next generation of engineer. So there you go, everything you want to know about Mark E. Dean, an African-American computer engineer best known as co-creator of the IBM PC. Yeah, well, stick around. We're not quite done with this topic about open and closed computer architecture because, you know, there's uh, IBM and and, and its very successor uh, and uh, imitators. And then there's the, the whole Apple universe, which is really closed unto itself. We'll talk about which is which and how which one is more advantageous and in what way. And so this is what we're going to do. Pour yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and join us in the faculty lounge for Doc's Observations next on Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. The need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. How do you advance your career while still working full-time with an education that fits your schedule? Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University, changing lives one student at a time. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. Now it is time for observations from the faculty lounge. As Andrew indicated, we want to talk about open architecture computers versus closed architecture computers. Now, the IBM PC is an open architecture computer, and the Macintosh and anything that Apple produces is closed architecture. Now, let's compare the two. When IBM developed the open architecture, that means that all the interfaces between the components, they wrote the specs for them. They wrote the specs for that industry standard architecture bus, that ISA bus. So anybody could build a peripheral that would plug into the bus as long as they met the spec. So all the specs for the IP, IBM PC were written down and anybody could copy the entire machine because all the specs were written there. And if you met the interface specs in their specification document, you could make an IBM clone computer. As a result of that open architecture, uh, the IBM machine proliferated worldwide. 
it had a it was a you got a price reduction because you had multiple people building hardware in the in the uh, for the IBM open architecture and whenever you have competition prices come down now on the other hand a closed architecture like uh, say the Macintosh or any Apple machine they don't publish their interface standards that are internal to the machine that's all proprietary they don't they don't maintain them as standards they can change them at will so people can't really write can't really develop hardware for the Apple machine. So everything in an Apple computer is built by Apple or it's built under contract by someone where, or Apple just contracts for it. So Apple has soup to nuts control over every single thing which is in their computer. Now what that tends to do, because there's no competition, that tends to lead to higher prices. And as you know, all the Apple machines are in fact more expensive. But it has one advantage that Apple had. It's easier to write uh, operating systems without bugs in them because you control the hardware. And so you just have to write an operating system that works for the hardware that you've created. On the other hand, the uh, open architecture PC had all these peripherals in it built by all these different companies. And whenever they would upgrade the operating system, they would have to make certain that it worked all of these different up you know, peripherals. They'd have to get device drivers for all these different peripherals. And they were coming from a lot of different companies. So that made it far more complex to, you know, to update the, um, update, uh, the operating systems. Now, but in the end, open architecture won the battle. Uh, the IBM PC is the dominant computer in the world. Now in the U.S., uh, I, you know, there are there there's still Apple computers being sold, but not as many as IBM's because the of uh, the the price point just allowed proliferation everywhere. So that open architecture meant that in terms of the number of deployed computers, they would win with the open architecture. Just like open 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 source software always wins. Like the protocol for the internet is TCP/IP. That's open source. That's open source software. And there, in the day, there were like dozens of different networking protocols. But in the end, every proprietary protocol uh, was discontinued, and the open source um, software protocol, TCP/IP, won the battle. Same thing with Linux. Linux is basically open source software. It's a it's a port of the Unix operating system to the IBM PC, and um, and it. Um, and it's it's open source, and it's it's probably the dominant operating system on the um, on the internet. So, so in the end, open source tends to win the battle in terms of price and proliferation. In terms of specialization, like with the Mac, I'd I'd say they've won the specialization war because they made a very dedicated machine, has very dedicated high quality components, and so there's a definitely almost a cult following with the Mac. And, and there are a lot of Macs sold in the U.S., but not as many PCs. So. Which approach, Doc, is better for the company itself, though, then? I mean, it's just two different approaches, both of which end up being successful business models? Yeah, they, they – well, now it's interesting. IBM had never done an open architecture before. So the, because they're, all of their mainframes are, are, are closed architecture. I mean, every component in a mainframe is built by IBM. They don't have any – any standard bus that people can build components for. Everything is built by IBM. So this was the first attempt, 
that they had to enter the market with, with open architecture. And they, they wanted to uh, do this in one year. So they had this renegade team actually launch the product in one year. But in the end, because you could clone an open architecture computer, the bulk of the IBM PCs were not built by IBM. Right. So <laughs> doesn't that hurt their right? So does that hurt their uh, bottom line? So it um, and so if if so it would hurt their bottom line uh, in the sense of if their goal was to uh, what what you know was to sell the IBM PC um, only. But but they had a whole integrated system of business systems, mainframes, and and they uh, they I think they just wanted you know you ubiquitous. Uh, um, IBM systems out there that would that that would that would dominate the world, but from a um, from a but they made less money on every computer, and in the end, I in the end IBM decided that really the the PC business wasn't for for them, and the per the, the company that was manufacturing the IBM ThinkPad in uh, in uh, in China was Lenovo. They ended up selling the whole PC unit to Lenovo. So now the old IBM PC unit is really a Chinese company. So still operating so I, under the IBM brand, though, as no, IBM PC, no, not it's, even. It's not, they, not they even. kept ThinkPad, but they can't put IBM on it. Okay. And they and the research division for that group is in Research Triangle, North Carolina. So they um, uh, and that's it's it, 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 that's the same place where they they had a research group for the IBM PC. So they probably just took over some of the researchers from, from IBM and just kept doing the, the research group. I, 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 um, so I, I guess what you have to ask is what is better for society as opposed to what's better for the company? I, I suppose from a society point of view, we're better off with open architecture, open source, because it, it leads to low-cost technology. But I guess from a selfish point of view, IBM could have like kept it proprietary and tried to be the sole manufacturer, and that may not have been as good for the world. So, I I, I think it's uh, it's a bit of a trade-off there. And like TCP/IP, open-source software, nobody owns it, nobody got rich over it, but there were a lot of dedicated computer scientists that wanted to really change the world and make the internet available everywhere. So, uh, maybe it's not a good business model. But it's a, it's a good technology model. But it really became a great vehicle for Microsoft, didn't it, to be the primary software sort of um, uh, it, distributor it, in, in the world? Because they, they, they're the ones that do all this IBM stuff and IBM-compatible stuff. That's right. So, so they, they, yeah, they, IBM made the decision not to develop their own operating system because they had a one-year uh, bogey to launch this thing. And they got this upstart company, Microsoft, to build the original operating system disk operating system, DOS, and, um, and they basically, um, you know, sort of copied another operating system that was out there and just did enough so they wouldn't violate copyright rules. And they, they launched DOS, and that was really the beginning of the whole IBM uh, system, and that was, you know, a command prompt. And you, you, you'd have to know something about, uh, you know, about the commands in order to get the computer to do stuff. I love DOS, actually, because I'm kind of a, a computer program or a co command prompt kind of guy. So I, I like DOS. But they ultimately came out with uh, Microsoft wanted to come out with Windows operating with a they came out with OS2, which was Windows. And then which they didn't call it Windows. They called it OS2 to replace DOS. 
they were trying to write their own operating system. And then Microsoft came out with a version of OS2 that they called Windows. And they, um, and they launched Windows 1, which was really terrible, then Windows 2, then Windows 3. None of them were very good. And then uh -huh. on April 6th, 1992, they launched the first Windows operating system that I that I installed. Oh, it was pretty good. Windows. Let's get into the time machine and see what they were saying about their product back then. Well, 1992. You can say that Microsoft Windows makes the world a better place, a nation more productive. V very bold claim. A business more yeah. profitable. <laughs> but really. Microsoft Windows just makes your everyday work easier. Isn't that the point of personal computing anyway? Ah, uh, that's a Microsoft beautiful. Windows. We only do it because we love you. But I, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you, that ad is really boring, isn't it? <laughs> but uh, but it makes a compelling point. And isn't it the, the beginning of where Windows begins to look more and more like what Macs looked like? Because yeah, right, I mean, yeah, are you starting to click they, on icons were, and? And using le were, using command control a lot less than you used to. That is exactly right. Yeah, they were they were coming up with they'd actually had true type fonts, so you could get uh, WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get when you do printing. So they 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 called you know scalable true type fonts were in that. Now the thing that I liked in Windows three point one, they had two games pre installed: Solitaire and Minesweeper. And I, I really enjoyed playing Minesweeper. I don't know. I got hooked on I that. I got to think, though, Solitaire is the bigger, uh, the, the more popular one because everybody, everybody was playing Solitaire. Everybody played Solitaire. They also came up with shortcuts like Control-C for copy and Control-V for paste. Ah, like so Apple ended up imitating them. Yeah, and they uh, it, they ended up selling. It was so popular, 3.1. I mean, even I was convinced to drop the DOS, and I love DOS. Uh, 3.1 looked so good at the time. Three million copies of Windows 3.1 were sold in the first three months, and Windows was 3.1 was considered a success. It was uh, more user friendly than 3.0. I did not. I installed 3.0 just to look at it. I didn't like it. I just stayed with DOS. And Windows 1 and Windows 2 were terrible. But Windows 3.1, they finally solved all the problems. Now, if you still are running <laughs> Windows 3.1 on your computer, you're out of luck. They stopped supporting it with, uh, with security updates in 2001. So it's, it's reached its end of life. Yeah, well, you're really play, playing with fire if you want to have, have that old a system because there are so many uh, security things it wouldn't be able to do anymore, so many operations it couldn't really conduct anymore. There's just, I, yeah, I, I don't know how much use you can get out of a computer that's I that old. I don't think so. Yeah, and it, it's it's so slow, so sluggish now. Now, but it was, but in the day, it was really quite good. Doc, we got more things to talk about, but maybe we'll take a quick break here and uh, and then get back to, uh, to finish the show, okay? Okay. All good. right. We're listening to Tech Talk Radio. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. 
the need has never been greater for healthcare professionals. Nursing is one of the most in-demand degrees you can have. If you are a registered nurse, you can get a fast track to a BSN and advance your nursing career to the next level. The Stratford University RN to BSN pathway can be completed fully online or in a classroom setting at the Alexandria or Woodbridge campus. Find out more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University. Changing lives, one student at a time. How do you advance your career while still working full-time? With an education that fits your schedule, Stratford University allows students the flexibility to access the course material 24-7 and finish their assignments at their convenience. Pursuing your master's degree has never been easier. You can do this. Find out about graduate programs in cybersecurity, digital forensics, information systems, accounting, and more at stratford.edu. That's stratford.edu. Stratford University, changing lives one student at a time. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge of Stratford University talking technology. A researcher has been studying mushrooms. Now, these aren't these, you know, these aren't the um, mushrooms that you can get high on. He's been studying mushrooms to see whether they actually communicate. You might look at a bed of mushrooms on the forest floor and think they're totally silent, but he's discovered that beneath the surface, they're actually communicating. Mathematical analysis of electrical signals between the fungi, fungi uh, can have very specific identifiable patterns, and these patterns bear a striking resemblance to human speech. Now, previous research has suggested that fungi connect through electrical impulses using the structures called hyphae, uh, that's similar to how nerves communicate in human beings. It's even shown that the rate of firing of these impulses increases when the hyphae of wood ingesting fungi come into contact with wooden blocks, when they find food, they send out an alert. That raises the possibility that fungi use this electrical language to share information about food or injury. Now, Professor Andrew Adamatsky of the University of West England's uncomputer, unconventional computer lab analyze the electrical spikes generated by four species of fungi. He inserted tiny electrodes into substrates of, col- of a colonized patchwork of hyphae, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the communication fibers that the, that, the, um, that the fungi use. The research found that there were spikes of activity and that it resembled uh, communication with a vocabulary of up to 50 words. He detected quite sophisticated communication between the, the fungi. The distribution of these fungal word lengths closely matched those of human languages and speech. I, I wonder now, if this is a bit like um, Morse code, though, because you're measuring the length of a signal. It's not like there's a whole lot of tonal variation in the signal. It's an no. electro, right? But it's the length of the signal, so it's almost like a complicated kind of Morse code. It is. And uh, 
So these, you know, they, they're, and they're trying to figure out what they're, how they're communicating. He said they're definitely not random events, and they because they're tracked. This reminds me of the movie Avatar. Oh, does it? Where now? trees communicated, yes, uh, with each other and held the language of their ancestors. Oh, yeah, here you go. It's, it's the language of the ancestors, right here, Doc. Oh yeah, I love that. No, I know, I know you probably know Vulcan, but I'm not sure you know the language uh, that we're hearing now, right now. No. Doc. Uh-uh. <laughs> yeah, so Avatar, um, you know, you could actually, the, the, the uh, beings that, um, that populated this area could communicate with Mother Earth by linking directly to the Mother Tree. And they felt that this was like a giant computer where all the through the root system, all the trees communicated with each other and knowledge of their ancestors was there and that this actually represented the energy of the earth. And this was, uh, their whole culture was built around that until the evil human beings came to try to dig up the mother tree because they wanted minerals for war. Yeah, Doc, I got a problem with this as an evil human being who eats vegetables because now are we beginning to think that vegetables actually have feelings? This would be a problem, wouldn't it? Yeah, because then we're stuck eating nothing. If we're already not eating animals because we don't want to hurt their feelings, what do we do with vegetables? I know. uh, (laughs) I, 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 I think what we're discovering is that we don't really understand everything about nature. No, and the idea this this sort of blurring the lines now between animal and vegetable, right? I mean, it we're going to blur the lines a little bit. Everything has some animal. Everything might. It might turn out that things have an animal component to them, or at least what we traditionally categorized as animal behavior. Yeah, and see, even even the definition of life, where you've got a seed which which grows and subdivides, that uh, it's it's alive. I mean, a tree is alive, and they, we have known that trees communicate, because you might have like ten trees in an area, and one tree becomes effect, uh, becomes infected, and that infection affects all the other trees, and they develop kind of a defense defense mechanism against the infection that one tree has. So there is evidence that they are actually um, actually communicating. And, Listen, and helping to oh, heal each other, Doc, helping here. to heal each other. Imagine yeah, that. helping yeah. to heal each other. Yeah. Listen, we love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. And go to the Stratford University website, www.stratford.edu. Check out our programs in nursing, uh, health sciences, uh, computer uh, computer networking, software engineering, cybersecurity, uh, hospitality, culinary arts, business and accounting. And let them know that you heard about those programs on Tech Talk Radio. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.